This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Dandelion seed blowing, white fluff, floating above cracked pavement, wilting tulip beds. How much desire is tossed about in the world. How rarely it anchors, sprouts, blooms. From the poem Spring Melancholy, written by me, KB Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother, The first piece of bad news is the discovery of a quit-claim deed from 2005 in which my mother signed away her rights to the house. Combing back through the public record documents, I'm able to paint a clearer picture of the house's history. It was purchased by my grandparents in July of 1971. When my grandfather died in March of 2001, ownership of the house was split, half for my grandmother and half for his two living children giving a quarter claim each to my mother and Joe. At this time, the house had been paid for in full. My mother's claim was terminated in July of 2005, when she signed the quitclaim deed and relinquished her ownership to my grandmother. Then Joe's quitclaim deed came in April 2008, just two days after he'd appeared in court and was found guilty of criminal trespassing. His signature conveyed to my grandmother full and complete ownership of the house. No doubt this was a financial decision, because that year she took out the $12,000 loan from the mortgage company I'd heard so much from lately. And the dates on the loan application that the lawyer sends confirms this. Since that was 12 years ago, it means that whatever is outstanding on the mortgage can't be much. No more than three or $4,000, I'm sure even when considering that they'd also been paying the property taxes from the mortgage payments escrow account. I'm sure that Joe's credit or his arrest record probably made this transfer from him to my grandmother a necessity. She would have had better credit and no arrest record of any kind. Regardless of the reasoning, it meant that upon my grandmother's death, her 100% ownership of the house should have been split between her two surviving children 50-50 ownership between Joe and my mother, in theory. The second bad news, the killing blow, arrives in my inbox soon after. This email from the lawyer has a single attachment. I open it on my computer and read, Last will and testament, then my grandmother's name. I, a resident of Nashville, Tennessee, being of sound mind and disposing memory, do hereby make my last will and testament, and do hereby revoke all other wills made and codicils by me. I do hereby appoint my son as the executor of my estate 
to serve without bond, and I do hereby waive the filings of any accountings and inventory by him. I do hereby give, devise, and bequeath all of my property, both simple and property of which I die, to be seized by my son, absolutely, and in fee simple. The will is punctuated with my grandmother's signature and dated December 30th, 2008. Is this a binding will? I ask my attorney. It appears so, he says. She left him everything, I say in disbelief. She completely wrote my mother out of the will? Do you have any reason why your grandmother would do that? He asks me. No, I don't know why she would do that. At the time, it may have been a financial decision, but that doesn't tell me why she'd leave my mother with nothing. Why she wouldn't at least give her back what was already hers, unless she really believed that Joe would look after her, take care of her, make sure she got what she deserved. Well, the lawyer begins, did your mother have anything else? Anything that may need to go through probate? No, I think. And I remember how my mother would cut my cheeks in her hands, kiss my nose, my forehead, my cheeks until I was laughing. And over the laughter, she'd say, you're the most precious thing in my life, absolutely priceless. I wouldn't trade you for all the money in the world. No, I tell him, the old sadness rolling through me again. She didn't have anything else. The lawyer goes on to explain that since our business is done, that he won't need to take the case to court for me, he'll return what's left of my retainer by mail. I thank him and hang up. In the weeks that follow, my feelings are mixed. On one hand, I'm deeply relieved. There will be no battle, no years of having to work with Joe, possibly appearing in court beside him, making arguments or defending my mother's rights. I would have done it, of course. I have no problem taking up arms when necessary, but it would not have been fun. It would have been exhausting and emotionally draining at the very least, economically perilous at its worst. But here I'm given the perfect excuse to bow out, to step away from the madness and salvage my own sanity and peace of mind, if only the relief would last. Too quickly it vacillates with irritation, anger on my mother's behalf, that the people she loved, relied on, had manipulated her. Whether my mother realized it or not, they conned her into giving away what was rightfully hers. Because Joe didn't quit anything in 2005. He held on to his claim for three more years, until my grandmother had been forced to refinance the house for $12,000 in order to pay the back taxes on the property. But it's more than that. Did they really care so little about her well-being? About what was fair? Or had my grandmother decided, perhaps rightfully, that my mother would always need care, and for some reason I'll never understand that she had actually trusted Joe to provide that care. Joe had once said to me, I promised our parents that as long as she was alive, my sister would always have a place here in our home. I'd always look after her. As long as she was alive. What an interesting choice of words. That evening, I call Shay, my mother's ex, and give her the update on the probate situation. 
I'd been checking in with her more and more in the weeks since my mother died. First, because it was nice to talk to someone who knew my mom, who understood her as well as I did. We shared the same frustrations about my mom's choice to return to her childhood home, again and again, placing herself within Joe's reach each time. And Shay was dealing with many of the same emotions I was. Guilt. Regret. I should have had her come here and stay with me. I've got an extra bedroom, she'd said. I knew something was up. When I'd called and I'd told her about my mama and daddy dying, when she didn't even remember it the next time, gosh, I knew something wasn't right. I'd reached out through Facebook first, knowing that she would want to know that my mother had passed, being as she was the last real friend my mother had had. When Shay had gotten my message, she'd called me right back, and I told her the news, what the police had said. She wasn't surprised. How many times had we told her he was going to kill her? How many damn times, Corey? I couldn't argue. Though admittedly I'd expected a violent death, apparently so had Shay, because when I tell her that there was no real physical damage to my mother's body, at least nothing that could have caused her death, and that Joe claimed it was an overdose, she refused to believe it. No damn way, she said. She lacked her pills, true enough, and that damn doctor in Telahoma just kept giving them to her. Somas, Valium, it didn't matter. But there ain't a pill she liked that'd kill her, and she ain't fool enough to take a whole damn bottle at a time. It's not only the doctors that are to blame, I think. I was 14 or 15 when I got a skin graft in my mouth. The surgeon had cut a piece of skin from the roof of my mouth and sewed it along the bottom of my teeth. They did this to repair gum loss and to prepare me for the braces I would never have. When I'd woken up with a sore mouth to stitches and gauze I couldn't stop tonguing to save my life, they'd given me a prescription for pain pills. I'd taken one that night when the pain had been at its worst. I'd gotten through half a bowl of cereal before I was drooling on myself, staring into my cocoa puffs as if I was going to divine my future in the milk. Shay, laughing, had taken the bowl away. I think that's enough for now. Give it up before you fall in, she'd said. Because I hadn't liked how the pills had made me feel. Like my body was heavy, uncontrollable. Like something I didn't own, I hadn't wanted to take anymore. When my mom asked if she could have what was left, I didn't even put up a fight. If she took them immediately or added them to her collection, I don't know. But she did have a collection, I think of the row of kitchen cabinets in the home my mother and I shared with Shay for almost 10 years. In the early 90s, I could open three whole doors and see the pill bottles stretching from one side of the cabinet to the other. They stood in little rows, orange bottles with their white caps filling both shelves top and bottom. And I have more than a few memories of her pulling a bottle down after she got home from work, of her standing at the bathroom sink, cupping her hand under the running faucet, and gathering just enough water to throw the pill back. What if it was a pill that killed her, I ask. I hear they're mixing all kinds of crazy things into pills these days. Whereas I can't take so much as a vitamin or my probiotics without choking on my own tongue. Well, if there was a pill, how the hell did she get it? Shay asks. And don't tell me that bullshit about the broken safe. You know she couldn't have managed that. He must think we're dumb as hell. How'd she get a hold of a pill? It's a good question. If Joe is the sort of man to keep his drugs locked in a safe, I can't imagine a viable scenario in which he would drop a pill or have left one on the sink. 
that's somehow in between setting pans on fire on the stove or stuffing things in the freezer, that my mom would have managed to find this pill, stuffed between a couch cushion or something, and take it. And if there had been one sitting on the bathroom sink, or somewhere real obvious and inviting, would he have left it there on purpose, hoping, knowing she couldn't resist, that all his talk about locking up her medicine to keep her safe might have been just another lie, another manipulation that he expects everyone to believe. Talking to Shay makes me miss my mom, her voice. To ease the ache, I ask Shay, how did you and mom meet? If I can have nothing else, I'll take a story, a sweet reminder that my mother had been here and alive once upon a time. We met at the cabaret. It was a gay bar in Nashville. Your mama was putting makeup on the drag queens. That night, I ask. For a while, I think. She'd do it before they went on the stage for their shows. So she came over and said hi or what? Sort of. She pulled my friend's hair. What? You see, we had tails back then. And she came up and pulled my friend's tail. When she turned around, your mama apologized, saying that she thought my friend was someone else, someone she knew. Likely story, I thought. I asked her to join us. We got to talking, and turns out we did know some of the same people. I'd known your Aunt Renee for ten years already, but hadn't crossed paths with your mama. I went home with her that night. Corey, I have never done anything like that, a one-night stand. I'd only just been broken up with Linda for a month. I wasn't even looking for nobody. How did we end up moving in with you? Well, your mama got into it with that roommate of hers. She'd beat her up pretty good, actually. So when she called me to come and get her, I did. She looked like hell with all those bruises on her. You know your mama bruised easy. She did, I agree. And that weekend, I moved you both out here to my trailer. This was in 91, I believe. It wasn't always good times, but sometimes we were real happy. Yeah, I agree. We were. I don't remember the exact moment we moved to Shay's trailer in Manchester, Tennessee, but I do remember being happy there. It was a clean, well-lit trailer, two bedrooms, one for my mom and Shay, and one for me. I even had my own bathroom. Shay had brought me a brand new daybed and a desk, a dresser for my clothes. It was quieter than my grandmother's, which I liked, and because both mom and Shay had to work during the day, I was a latchkey kid. I was dropped off at my elementary school in the mornings, on their way to work, and I walked myself home in the afternoons. It was an easy walk, less than a mile, and entirely through quiet, safe neighborhoods. Back then, the neighborhood had a little market called Mrs. Carter's Grocery Store. It was nothing more than a one-room shack with rough wood walls and a couple of cold cases, but I would pop in and buy candy or ice cream with the change my mom had left on the counter that morning. Then the rest of the evenings were entirely my own. Sometimes I read books or watched television. Other times I went exploring. I was free to come and go as I pleased, as long as I was home by dark, and I'd always left a note. Close to the house was a park called Old Stone Fort. This archaeological park could be accessed by ducking behind any of the houses, tracing the edge of my neighborhood. Turns out the place was built for unknown reasons thousands of years ago by the prehistoric natives from the area. Of course, I didn't know any of this. 
I just knew that it was a dense forest, wilder than anything I'd ever known. It was what you might imagine if someone said the woods. As in, when I was a child, I loved to play in the woods. There were winding riverbeds and trees so tall I couldn't see the top of them. Sometimes I saw snakes or turtles or frogs, birds of all kinds, deer and rabbits. Apart from tormenting the wildlife, I loved to play in the water. In some places, it was deeper than I was tall. In other places, little more than a creek bed. These were offshoots of the Little Duck River and perfect for swimming and splashing. And the water's edge was trimmed by wide warm stones on which to dry myself in the sun before starting the walk home. All of this made the tiny creek that ran behind the houses in my grandmother's neighborhood look like puddles. So it was easy to lose myself for hours, investigating the underside of rocks, climbing branches for a better view of the wilderness around me, or running across fields with grass so high it came up to my chest. Once, after a particularly hard rain, my friends and I had gone into the woods only to find it saturated. By the time I came home, I was covered from head to toe in mud. When I knocked on the back door, I had to beg Shay to let me in. Her jaw dropped when she saw me, before she burst into laughter. My God, where have you been? Look at you. It's like you've been tarred. She only agreed to let me in after she hosed me down, literally with the hose pipe hanging from the hook on the back deck. Another time, when I'd arrived home from school with hours of freedom stretching before me, I decided I'd wanted to take a bubble bath. The private bath attached to the room had a jacuzzi tub with the jets that would sputter as long as the dial on the wall was running. Once the timer ran out, it would automatically shut off. So when I ran the bath, I added Mr. Bubble's syrupy pink liquid to the gushing water. I must have been very tired because I fell asleep to the low ticking of the timer, the warm jets pounding my little limbs. When I woke up, there were bubbles all right, everywhere. They'd overflowed the tub and into the bathroom floor. Then they'd kept going. As I leaned out of the tub, peering into the bedroom, I saw that the bubbles had spread all the way through the bathroom, through the bedroom, and out into the kitchen. Oh no, oh, oh no. I clamored wet and naked out of the tub, desperately trying to get the timer on the wall to stop fueling the traitorous jets. Once it did stop, I grabbed a towel and tried to soak up the bubbles. This was useless. Two or three swipes was all it took to soak the towel, and it still left me with a mountain of bubbles to contend with. And I was still naked, covered in bubbles, when Shay and Mom came home from work. They found me in the kitchen with a broom as I was trying to sweep the bubbles outside onto the deck. When they saw me, my lip quivered, tears filled my eyes, I thought I was going to be in so much trouble for using the tub without permission. But instead, once they recovered from the shock of seeing half of their house filled with bubbles, they laughed. They laughed so hard, they were the ones crying. One of my favorite memories, as simple as it sounds, was Sunday mornings. As soon as I would wake up, Shay would look at me, smile, and say, let's go. I'd race her to the green Mustang and ride shotgun as the two of us rode down to the Spring Street Market, a small grocery store at the end of the road. While there, she'd buy the Sunday paper, a fat, unwieldy thing that came with a comic section. She'd hand the comics over dutifully, 
and I'd read it at the kitchen table while eating my Sunday morning pancakes. I think I love this memory so much because it shows how steady, how calm this period of my life was, that I'd finally had things that I looked forward to, that I enjoyed, and I think my mother had been happier too, that these were some of her best years. All my memories of her smiling, of her enjoying herself, are from the years we lived with Shay. I had never heard her laugh before in a way that hadn't been forced or showy, never known her to spend so many days at a time in a manageable routine. Of course, it hadn't always been good. There was the incident where she forgot to come to my musical. There were the evenings when she would come home from work, bone-tired and irritable, and start drinking even before dinner. On some of those nights, I'd wake to Shay yelling and run from my bedroom to theirs, expecting the worst, only to find my mother in the closet, pissing into the dirty clothes basket because she had been too drunk to find the bathroom. Or on the nights when, after a long, hard day at her factory job, she'd call me into her room and ask me to pop and squeeze the blisters on her fingers while issuing grave warnings like, Stay in school, Corey. Work with your brain, not your body. Or, when pointing at her gray teeth and explaining, she'd say, The lithium did this. They put me on it when I was just a kid and it messed up my teeth. Do you want your teeth to look like this? Well, then you better brush them. There were also the moments when my mom would cheat on Shay, either leaving with a random person from the bar they'd gone to together or sneaking around with someone at work. When this happened, they'd fight. Once Shay had packed up all my mother's things into the green Mustang and had thrown them into some guy's yard, but they always got back together. They always smoothed things over. But even with more good times than I'd ever seen before, we couldn't fully escape my mother's sadness. Often it could be felt like a thick, consuming mist that dampened everything. One day when I was 14 or 15, I'd come home from school and found my mother and Shay were already home. They were on the back deck, them and their friends, drinking, grilling, talking over each other and the music blaring from the stereo. My mother was so morose, tears openly spilling from her eyes. That's when I'd remembered her court date had been that day. I could tell by her face alone, by the way she tipped the bottle back, that she'd gotten bad news. Yet everyone was trying to cheer her, make her smile. Come on, Leith, the four months is nothing. It'll pass by in no time. Yeah, it could have been so much more worse. They could have been so much stricter with you, hon. That night, when Shay popped her head into my bedroom to tell me goodnight, I'd quietly asked, What's gonna happen to me? She frowned, coming into the room and closing the door behind her. What do you mean, hun? When Mom goes to jail, where, what am I gonna do? Her face softened. Why, you'll be here with me, if you want to be. The relief of not being sent away was almost enough to soften the blow of a Thanksgiving and Christmas without my mother, while the other kids at school had been chatting excitedly for weeks about the family they'd see, the food they'd eat, the trips that they would take together. I was in store for a very different experience. On Thanksgiving morning, before we ate, Shay and I drove down to the Coffee County Jail. We were pat down, checked over, then escorted to the visitor's area. You first, hun, Shay said, after we were informed that only one person could see her at a time. She'll be glad to see you. 
But my mother didn't look glad as I settled down onto the wobbly metal stool on my side of the plexiglass. She looked embarrassed, forcing a smile and the practiced vivaciousness, which I understood even then, was a mask for the pain beneath. Tell me what delicious things you ate today. The food here is terrible. I haven't eaten yet, I tell her. But Shay got a small turkey and a box of those mashed potatoes we like, and a pie. My mom smacked her lips, following through with her show of good cheer. Well, enjoy yourself, baby, for the both of us. I run through these memories with Shay, sharing the laughs. She tells me she has a photograph of me as a teenager, probably 15 or 16. She was on the riding lawnmower in the middle of cutting the yard and I'd stopped her, leaning over the wheel with a most ornery face. You were getting on to me about something, she says. Sorry, I say. I'm sure I was an asshole as a teenager. No, hun, you were a good kid, always reading, and I guess it paid off, didn't it? I just don't understand why Nana would cut Mom out of the will. Why would she do that? Why does she keep throwing her own daughter to the wolves? She's always been like that, ever since Letha was a kid. At least as far back as the 70s after what Hank did. Hank. When she says this, I assume that she means my mother's half-brother, my grandfather's son from a previous marriage, the same brother who'd climbed into my mother's bed at night and had molested her. Well, what happened? She didn't believe Mom about what Hank Jr. was doing? I asked wondering if now, at long last, I was going to get the full story. Not Hank Jr., Shay corrects me. Hank Sr., your granddad. What did Papa do to her? There's a pause. I don't know that you need to hear this, hun. As if I would give up so easily. With conviction, I say, tell me. episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.